Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino. And before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that we are continuing our coverage of COVID-19 on the BHE website, as well as our sister sites. Our stories are looking at the unique challenges currently facing behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. We're also sharing some best practices from industry leaders on how you can prepare your organization for what's ahead. Be sure to check out the link to our COVID-19 coverage home in the notes for this episode. In the meantime, we're going to go in a little lighter direction with today's episode of the show. We are joined by Tammy Felker and Rich Dallum from the architectural firm NBBJ. Tammy is the firm's healthcare design leader, and Rich is a managing partner. Tammy and Rich, welcome to the BHE podcast. Appreciate uh, you guys taking the time. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here. All right, Tammy, I wanted to, uh, I, I did have one question I wanted to ask specifically to you as we get started here. Uh, you have the distinction of being both a certified nurse practitioner and a licensed architect. Can you tell us a little bit about how your clinical background has influenced your architectural work now? Uh, yes, I've been focusing the uh, recent uh, part of my career in architecture on behavioral health design. And that actually goes back um, many years ago when I was actually a nursing student. And I had a rotation in um, the state uh, psychiatric facility in Virginia. And um, there uh, was a, a classmate of mine who actually um, committed suicide during uh, that rotation. And ever since then, I've always think about her and providing an opportunity for hope and inspiration and a future forward in these spaces that we design because I think the physical environment really has an, an impact upon the overall uh, feeling and experience of, of the patients and staff and their families as well. Uh, we've all been touched by behavioral health uh, issues. Um, one in 25 in our country has a mental health diagnosis at some point in their lifetime. And having been on the clinical side and now in the architecture design side, I really see how those two interact and influence um, the experience of the uh, users of those spaces. Okay. Rich, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and um, how that's influenced uh, the work that you're doing now as well? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, so my background, um, I actually started out in biophysics and ended up getting my undergraduate degree in um, philosophy of science, got a master's in analytic philosophy. And at that point, I uh, followed uh, what some might say was the naive and youthful uh, supposition that architecture is actually applied philosophy. So I've had a fundamental interest in how uh, architecture relates to health, healing, and well-being since the beginning of my career. So after that, I went and got my architectural degree. And, you know, at NBBJ, uh, since our founding over 76 years ago, we've been, one of our prime areas of focus has been, you know, environments for health, healing, and the well-being of people. Question I'm going to ask uh, for both of you, could you just kind of talk about just the role that facility design itself can really play in, uh, you know, achieving better clinical outcomes? Um, I, I think 
at times, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, hey, this is our, our workspace. This is where we're, you know, we're providing care. Uh, it is what it is. But um, a lot of thought goes into, um, you know, creating a space that can help uh, build a better outcome and, and, and lead to better outcomes. And um, can you just kind of talk about your role in, in making that happen? So one of the things that we did well over 25 years ago is um, as an architectural firm, we started to include clinicians into our practice. And part of it was so that we could better understand the language and operations of our healthcare clients. One of the things that we talk about is the environment that the environments that we design have to perform. And so performance uh, is something that we work very closely with clinicians and our clients to identify, you know, where's an opportunity to improve the experience, to improve, let's say, uh, the reduction in infection control, uh, the reduction in patient days. Uh, so the notion of measured outcomes and sort of high performance design is something that we work very closely with our clinical colleagues to do within our work, uh, because ultimately architecture should both inspire, so that's the beauty side of it, uh, it should uplift us, but it should also help us perform better as opposed to just creating a new facility to keep doing things the way you've always done. Yeah, and I think that um, we have been looking at doing a deeper dive analysis and understanding the current state, how spaces are operating and functioning, and then working to have follow-up post-occupancy analysis to understand, you know, are these design interventions really making a difference? Um, there have been a number of studies, um, Roger Ulrich did a, several that were really groundbreaking that really um, started to look at the design interventions that we utilize and how they impact um, aggression, uh, outbursts, uh, restraint and seclusion use, and um, length of stay and an overall satisfaction by the patients and staff. And so really trying to get a little bit more rigor around what has much of has been to the date um, more anecdotal. Uh, again, to really understand are these interventions really making a difference in the overall experience and outcomes and, and safety of the staff and the patients. Can you share an example of something, uh, you know, like a trend in design that has changed in the last few years based on that research that you're seeing and, uh, you know, the, the information that's in, you know, leading to the design choices that you make? Um, I think some of the interventions are um, looking to reduce social density. Uh, having a high density of patients in a space really does uh, elicit a stress response. And that stress response can be manifested in you know, agitation, aggression, uh, acting out against the you know, physical environment or, or others. And so getting social density, providing privacy, options for choice and control in the environment, and opportunities for patients to have a space to be able to de-stem themselves. So, self-soothing behaviors that uh, they can use and learn and with coaching of the staff when they're in the inpatient setting that they can use those strategies upon discharge so that they can learn to manage and regulate their emotions uh, and actions in a more appropriate way. So those factors all together really are trying to get at the issue of aggression um, in this behavioral health environment. 
Another area, Tom, is the concept of agency, you know, and that's the issue of how do people, um, you know, not just in behavioral and mental health facilities, but in all gain a larger experience of ownership and authorship of your thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so things that we can include in projects. Uh, so for instance, uh, an adolescent behavioral health facility we're doing is including a productive garden so that the, the adolescents there actually can engage that, can watch it productively grow, can harvest it, so that they're they're not just feeling incarcerated during their time within a facility. So, since you mentioned um, that you're you know working on a project for an adolescent facility, that reminds me, and I'm kind of curious to hear: Are there considerations that you have to uh, factor in related to specific patient populations, special populations? Um, and uh, you know, are, are are there design considerations that are different if you're dealing with you know like a children's facility uh, versus a facility that's going to be catering more to uh, seniors, for example, or a men's program versus a women's program? Absolutely, the patient populations have unique needs, and and because people are there at different developmental milestones um, and stages of life, and have different abilities. Um, the underlying feature across all of those uh, demographics, though, is that it has to be a safe environment. Um, so that is something that is a consistent theme across all. But again, for a pediatric population uh, or young adult, you're looking at um, maintaining a sense of normalcy. Uh, we're really wanting to try to destigmatize the experience of being in a behavioral health facility. So trying to create a sense of normalcy, normal routines, activities, going to school, classes, um, and then also play is really important for the pediatric population. That's the work of childhood is, is play. And so providing therapeutic uh, activities and environments that allow those different life uh, stage activities occur is really important. Um, another population to think about is the autism spectrum uh, disorder group. Um, that population has some very specific needs, and specifically if you're uh, trying to integrate uh, applied behavioral analysis uh, therapy into that program. So we need to create a safe environment where that kind of activity can happen. And then geriatric population, you have all of the issues of mobility, um, decreased visual acuity, and um, auditory acuity. So those populations have a slightly different twist. And how do you make, you know, a bathroom environment safe for a geriatric population with safe grab bars, non-slip fin uh, finishes. So again, um, it's tweaked, it's modified, refined for that particular population. But again, the underlying theme across all is to normalize and destigmatize and make a safe and, and therapeutic and healing environment. When you're taking on a new project with a new client, who on the client side are you looking for input from who, who, which roles within that organization should be uh, voicing uh, their thoughts on the needs uh, for that project? And how do you keep all of these different individuals, all these different stakeholders on the same page as you go through the design process? Well, one thing that we like to do, Tom, is we like to engage the top leadership. So the CEO, the COO, the chief nursing officer, the chief medical officer, 
those are important in terms of establishing a vision for the project. Um, so for instance, one of the issues is what's their tolerance for challenging uh, current assumptions on care? Uh, that takes visionary leadership uh, to be able to do that. And then we have a lot of processes that are um, very engaging for user groups. Uh, so we do what's called full-scale rapid prototyping. And what that means is, you know, out of very large sheets of cardboard, we're actually building physical spaces because it's easier for many people to understand space size, the flow between spaces, what I'm doing in spaces. It also allows us to develop personas for patient types and then run patient journeys so that people can run scenarios, which is much easier to do interactively than using drawings or even using some of our very sophisticated um, computer modeling tools. So those are a couple of things that we look for. Commitment from the top leadership across all disciplines. We have a way of engaging the users so that the users can provide meaningful input during the course of the project and actually understand because what we find is we'll use a variety of tools to enhance understanding so that people can make better decisions uh, throughout the process. We also engage families, um, patients, and other people during the process so we get their insights as well. When you are working with a client on uh, you know, a facility design, are there any pain points that you find that clients are bringing you that uh, tend to be uh, you know, common or any, anything in particular that you're hearing over and over again as a recurring issue for a lot of different clients? And um, are there any issues that you might bring up in an initial meeting with a behavioral healthcare company that they hadn't really given any thought to uh, before they approached you? Well, I'd say one pain point for almost any organization is the time to uh, engage in the process. So what you, you know, if you're going to be investing millions of dollars in a facility, it's very important that uh, from the beginning, you organize uh, the availability of your staff so that they can all productively uh, contribute. So that's one pain point area. And it's really important because by engaging people early, you have the ability to help make much better decisions that you don't have to turn over later because you're getting late input or somebody didn't understand what was going on. Well, and I think kind of building on that, Rich, it is really important to have consistent participation. Um, the process that Rich was talking about um, earlier about how we work through engagement of the of the clinical staff as well as the leadership, it, it's an iterative process and we build um, over the course of the design process to um, establish consensus, get buy-in and ownership. And um, again, those decisions, you know, they need to, to stick um, and they need to be championed um, as the pro project actually you know, comes online. And so that can be tough. You know, it can be tough for um, to pull frontline staff uh, off to participate in these design meetings. But it's it's really crucial and important that that they're there, and it's the same consistent um, folks that are there each time to to build that consensus and and build through that process so that we we aren't backtracking and losing precious design time or, or doing rework, which is no value add in that. Any other best practices? 
on a client side that you would recommend that can help facilitate this process and, and make for a successful design process and keep things smoothly moving along? Um, you know, it's up to us as designers to be able to organize a process. Um, it's important for um, owners and clients to be able to ensure that the right people are engaging at the right time. Um, and, you know, my emphasis on decision making is things typically can go sideways when you're not organized to make very effective decisions uh, during the process. So that notion of consistency, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of a related issue. So consistency of staff, you know, staff, um, behavioral mental health facilities can experience up to 40% staff turnover as a result of the issue of arousal fatigue. And arousal fatigue right now is one of the huge issues confronting a lot of staff in healthcare facilities. And particularly now with COVID-19, you're gonna see a lot of people burning out mentally and emotionally due to uh, sustained stimulation without breaks. Well, there's actually ways to, de to, to design to alleviate arousal fatigue um, using design strategies. and but what it requires is that you challenge assumptions and that you're willing to challenge assumptions, particularly on workday rhythm, things like that. And so I think one of the things that clients have to be able to do is suspend disbelief and engage and test a variety of new ideas that may be new to them in order to come up with a better solution that addresses critical issues such as staffing. I think that the point that Rich makes about you know making good decisions and and sticking with those decisions is is really key to success um, because oftentimes these projects are on a, a shoestring budget and a tight timeline. Um, we know that throughout the country we are severely underbedded in behavioral health and we we need to get these beds online and um, so we need to you know set up a good process, get consistent engagement and um, move through it in a, in a structured fashion so that um, we can uh, successfully bring these beds online to help address the issue that we have really nationally. Absolutely. I think that's a good point. And I, uh, I think that's going to be a good stopping point for us today. Tammy Felker and uh, Rich Dallum, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of great information today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here. Thank All you, right. Tom. All right. As a reminder for our listeners, you can stream the BHE podcast on our website, behavioral.net. And we encourage you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts as well. Our thanks again to Tammy Felker and Rich Dallum of NBBJ for joining us. I'm Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast.